Well, I invite you this morning to took, uh, to take up your Bibles and look to the uh, book of Leviticus. We, by God's grace, this morning will be considering chapters 8 through 10. And as we begin our time this morning, I would like to read to you from chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. You'll find that on page 87 in the Pew Bible in front of you as we consider God's Word. As I, and in fact, I just mentioned we're going to try to cover three chapters in the book of Leviticus. So um, I, I know some of you complain that I preach too slowly. And um, today I will rectify uh, those errors. And we are going to have to um, go a, a bit quickly this morning to cover all that God has for us to consider and to rejoice in. And I trust that he will speak to us this morning. Le- uh, Leviticus chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Here now. The Word of God. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you are inclined to reveal yourself to us and speak to us. And even though this morning we consider an ancient text, a strange text to us, a passage that we do not often consider from a book that we Um, do not often give our hearts to. We pray that you would help us to understand how these truths might apply to our lives. So we come humbly. We want to sit under your word today that we might know you better and become more like you. We want that not only for us this morning, we want that uh, for the people in Ghana. And so we are thankful that Mark and Craig and Jeff have arrived safely this morning and are even indeed worshiping today with your people at Hope Community Baptist Church. Bless them as you bless us as we consider your truth today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The great Louis XIV served as the King of France in the 17th century. An incredibly accomplished man. Uh, He would build the Palace Versailles, amongst many other um, projects. He longed, this man, to be remembered as the greatest king of France ever. In fact, when he died, he had pre-planned his funeral. He required that it would, of course, take place at Notre Dame. And there in the cathedral, the entire sanctuary would be darkened, except for a single candle which rested upon his casket. The symbol was that Louis XIV was the one who had given light to France, He was, after all, known as the Sun King, but now in death the sun has set. France is darkened, but even in death, 
he still gives light. Well, the pastor who was to preach that funeral when it came his time to address the gathered royalty of Europe, lords and generals, he promptly walked up to the casket and snuffed out the candle. And in darkness, he began his message saying, only God is great. Only God is great. Compared to the great God, the glory of man, no matter how great your accomplishments are, is like a flickering candle and God is the blazing sun. Today we have the privilege, I believe, to consider the glory of God from Leviticus chapters 8 through 10. We are now in week 4 of our study of Leviticus. It has been said that the book of Exodus shows us where God is to be worshipped. After all, the second half of Exodus is the construction of the tabernacle. And the book of Leviticus shows us how He is to be worshipped. And we have been considering that over the previous weeks, how God is to be worshipped. In fact, God is interested in worship. He left, He called the people out of Egypt in order that they might come and worship Him. He would raise up prophets in order to call the people to right worship. The psalmist would exhort the people of God to worship Him in earnest. For instance, Psalm 96 declares, Ascribe glory uh, to the Lord of His name. Bring an offering and enter His courtyard. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. When Jesus walked upon this earth, He told us that the Father is searching for people who would worship Him in spirit and truth. We see that the glorified saints in heaven gather around the throne in adoring and earnest worship, calling out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worship is what God calls us to do. Now please understand that worship is not simply singing. It is not simply what we do for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Worship is all of life. It has been said that worship is simply the right response to the revelation of God. That God reveals Himself and we come and respond to Him. And, And therefore worship has to do with every part of our life. And as we read on in Leviticus you will see God is interested in every part of life. In fact, parts of your life you had no idea, perhaps, that God would care about at all. He will address even some that are perhaps uncomfortable to us. God wants all of our lives to worship Him. But what we see here, in particular, is not the worship of an individual following God throughout their life, but it is the public gathered worship of the people of God. That The, the idea, the question that Leviticus raises, or at least answers, The question is, how can we approach this God who now lives in our midst, this holy king, and we can do so through sacrifice, right? We've, for three weeks, considered the five sacrifices in which God gives. We saw that these are the ways in which we are to approach God, that we are to seek atonement from God, we're to confess sin to God, we're to honor God by bringing him our gifts, we're to seek fellowship with God, we're, we're to seek to wash away our guilt and our impurity, Right? And we saw these sacrifices from chapters 1 through chapter 7. But you may not be aware of this, even though that all these sacrifices are described in great detail, not a single sacrifice has yet to take place. There has been no sacrifice offered to God because there are no priests to receive them. In fact, corporate, the corporate worship of the people of Israel at this point has never occurred. They have yet to gather together as a people and worship God until we get to this 
these passages in Leviticus. And so this is one of the most significant events in the history of Israel where the priests are ordained and the first sacrifices are offered at the tabernacle. We will see a great deal about the priest here. This was a special duty given to the tribe of Levi that they would serve as priests or intermediator, inter, intermediators between God and a sinful people. This is why we call the book Le, the Leviticus. It's simply the Greek for the book of the Levites. And so this whole tribe would devote themselves to the tabernacle and worship. You might ask, well, why do they need priests? Well, they need priests for the same reason you and I need a priest. We are sinful and God is holy. And so God in grace gave them priests, individuals especially consecrated, their whole life devoted to be the stand in between. And that through the priests, God's people would experience the joy of God's presence. Just as we do today. Right? We still experience the joy of God's presence through a priest, though certainly not in the same way as we shall consider. That's why I think it's important for us um, to consider these passages. We'll look in each chapter in turn. We'll begin chapter 8, seeing that God's priests are consecrated. Go to chapter 9. God's presence is celebrated. And finally, seeing chapter 10, God's honor is vindicated. So can, begin with me as we look in Leviticus chapter 8, seeing God's priests are consecrated, or we might use the word ordained. This simply means they're set apart for ministry. And you're going to find a very elaborate ceremony indicating that these men's that their position has now changed. We do this, for instance, in the ceremony of marriage. We're saying that these people who were once single have now changed their status and are now married. And we do this through elaborate ceremonies, the exchanging of rings and the, the declaration of vows and the announcement of intent, right? To show that they've changed their status. Well, that's what's happening here. These men are going from laymen, we might say, and they are becoming priests. And there's going to be this elaborate ceremony all around it. And it's not to flatter them. It's to communicate that God is holy. And that because we sin, we need a mediator between us and God. You could outline Leviticus chapter 8 in seven different sections. Each will end with the phrase, they did as the Lord commanded. You're just going to hear that over and over and over again. They did as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded. We'll see it in chapter 9 as, as well. It'll be very important for us to understand this passage. So let's look at these seven sections of this priest consecration. The first, by my error, is not on your notes if you're taking notes. It is the people gathered. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 4. The people gathered. The Bible says in Leviticus 8 verse 1, The Lord said, spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl and the sin offering and two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so God says, I want everyone here for this. All the nation is to gather. It's like a public wedding. All the people are called to witness this. And the congregation would there gather before the bronze altar to watch these men become ordained or set apart or consecrated. This will help the priests, right? Because this will, to make public vows, this public ceremony will help hold them accountable to the calling in which God has placed upon their lives. Now I know certainly elders are not, church elders are not priests. 
And yet there are parallels here. It's one of the reasons why we at Hamilton Baptist Church, when an elder is installed into that office, make public vows. It is helpful for them to declare before this congregation the type of men they will be and the type of leadership they will give in order to help them accountable to the calling in which God has placed upon their life. We see this happening here amongst these priests in Leviticus chapter 8. The second section of their uh, ordination is a uniform is given. That will be verses 5 through 8. Note the Bible says, And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breast piece on him and the breast and in the breast piece, he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown as the Lord commanded Moses. And so you see this incredible vestment that these guys, the, the high priest is wearing. It begins with this public bath, which I, I would imagine is somewhat awkward, but there it is, right? Um, Moses is bathing his brother Aaron in front of the whole congregation to symbolize that God seeks purity from these. You've got to wash the filth off. It is an image, an outward image of an internal reality. And then they would get dressed as this uniform is described. If, if you're interested, by the way, you want to get all the details about the priestly vestments, Exodus 28 and 29 go on and on. If you're finding so, uh, so much fun in Leviticus, maybe you want to do extra research. And so you go to Exodus 28 and 29. And one of the things you'll note is that God will praise the skilled craftsmanship that it takes to make these vestments. That it's a gift from God. That might encourage some of you that are skilled in these type of areas. Well, consider um, how he's dressed. He's first given a robe to wear. His robe will be blue. It will be very expensive. That dye is expensive. The hem of his robe will be embroidered with purple pomegranates. And there will be golden bells hanging at the end of his robe. Around his robe will be a sash that would be tied around his waist, similar to a belt. That would also be blue and purple. By the way, the veil inside the tabernacle separating God's throne room is blue and purple with scarlet uh, thread, just as these vestments. You ever see one of those like Christmas pictures where you got a mom and a daughter and they're wearing like the same turtleneck, right? And they match, right? You say they, right, they go together, right? That's what's happening here. Okay, so they look, we we are where we have the same clothing um, as God did. We belong to God. We are we are together. Right. And so he's dressing them in this way. And then over that, that he receives an ephod, which is a long vest, a sleeveless garment that would hang down to his thighs. And that again would be um, purple and gold with blue uh, with scarlet and golden thread through it. There will be onyx stones upon his shoulders. Over the ephod would be a breastplate attached with a blue cord through golden rings. The breastplate would be about 10 inches square. There will be 12 gemstones on that breastplate. Um, each one different. There will be four rows of three. On each of those stones would be engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. The idea is that the high priest, when he comes before God, will be wearing the very names of the people of God on his heart as he brings them into God's presence. Right In, in that breast uh, plate, there was a pouch, evidently, where they would put the Urim and the Thummim. 
Now, this, these are kind of mysterious. We're not exactly sure what they are. There's some kind of dice that they would catch, cast. This is why it's not translated. This simply means from the Hebrew light and perfection. And they would cast these dice every once in a while in order to determine God's will. Okay? This is how they, they figure that out. Now, they don't give those out at seminary. Okay? And so uh, we don't cast dice anymore. We, we, we have the Word of God. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we have the counsel of our wise brothers and sisters to help us understand God's will. Right? But it was a reminder, of course, that they're always to be seeking God's guidance. Upon their head was a turban, or his head was a turban. Tied to that turban was a golden plate, which is called the crown. It was tied with a blue cord. In, in, um, engraved upon that golden clay is the words, Holy to the Lord. That this high priest belongs especially to God. And every time they would see the high priest as he served in the tabernacle, they would all see this man as holy. He's set apart. He's devoted completely to God. I mean, what a sight this must have been. This man, dre- I mean, these people are just traveling in the wilderness. They don't have a lot of nice clothing. And here, yet this, this, this man who's dressed like a king stands before them as he serves in God's presence, right? And we still wear uniforms even today, not like this. You go to the doctor's office, what are they? they'll wear a white coat, won't they? Right? Um, the soldiers will have their uniform and they'll have their ribbons and their medals to indicate the uh, particular achievements that they have, have made. A, a police officer will have a badge. A judge will wear a gown, right? We do this not to emphasize the individual. It's actually to take our attention away from the individual and emphasize the office in which that individual holds. And this is what God is doing. He's not emphasizing Aaron. He's emphasizing the importance of, of the high priestly office, right? God, God as, as Aaron dons these vestments, don't you think he must be struck by the importance of what he was to do to lead God's people in worship? Don't you think everyone else is struck by this idea that God is, is preparing Aaron before he can even lead the, the people to worship God? And it makes me think, do, do you at all, do you ever think about your preparation for worship? Or is there anything that you might do to help you internalize the importance of the public gathering of God's people in honor of our God. It, it might not be how you dress. It might, by the way. Some people, I think, will want to prepare themselves physically in order to help their hearts follow along. In fact, uh, every time I will um, lead in giving the Lord's Supper, I will put a tie around my neck. Not because I think a tie makes me more holy, but just that simple act of preparing my body to... To stand before the people of God as I, in, in, by God's grace, deliver to God's people the ordinance in which God has given me as Jesus comes to that table to help serve us, it helps my heart. Now, I am not in any way saying that I, I, I could care less how people dress. But I, w- I wonder if there are ways that you might incorporate in your life how you can prepare for the importance of worship. I wonder if, it, if you, you and I would benefit if our Sunday mornings, before we even gather, look differently than the mornings of every day uh, of the rest of the week, that we know that what we're going to do today is important to God, and we want to prepare ourselves for it. Well, you see, these uniforms are given. The sanctuary third is then anointed. 
verses 10 through 13. They'll use this special anointing oil, and whatever it touches is now set apart as belonging to God. Moses will start with the tabernacle, then each object in the courtyard, he'll last pour oil upon Aaron's head, declaring that, Aaron, you now belong completely to God, reminding me of Psalm 23, which we, of course, know that God will anoint our head with oil. That is, that we will be His completely. You'll see in verse 13, the four sons of Aaron will wear simpler garments, but also beautiful as they are anointed to the priesthood. And so they're washed, they're dressed, they're anointed, right? They're ready to go. Okay, and they can start leading the worship. No, there's still a problem. You know what the problem is? These men are sinful. These priests bring sin with them. And so steps four to six, they have to take care of their own sin. Step three or four, you'll see a purification offering given in verses 14 through 17. A bull is killed in order to cleanse the altar, right? The bronze altars where they perform the sacrifices. That what God is teaching is that these priests that Aaron has already, because of Aaron's sin, defiled the altar. And it has to be cleansed from Aaron's defilement in order to offer sacrifices upon it. Right? I mean, this is surprising because the men who are chosen to minister to God are the very ones who have already polluted God's house. And therefore, um, they must wash that sin away. Once that altar is purified, number five, a burnt offering will be given. This will seek to be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of a ram as a substitutionary atonement to take care of their sin. Number six, the priests will be dedicated in verses 22 through 30. Note verse 22, the Bible says, Then he presented the other ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses said, uh, took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Right? This ordination offering, it's, it's a peace offering, it's a fellowship offering. Um, they'll do everything that they're supposed to do with a fellowship offering, except they'll add this smearing of blood. And it's not told us why, but I think it's probably easy to guess, isn't it? That uh, this high priest is to listen to God's voice, and he is to serve God with his hands, and he is to follow the Lord with his feet. He is God's from head to, literally from head to toe, isn't he? As he has been dedicated to God their whole body. If you read on in this passage, you'll see they'll then present some grain offerings. There'll be some more sprinkling of blood in order to deal with their sin. And the seventh step is that the priests are quarantined, as you note in verse 31. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it and the, and the bread that is in the basket of the ordination offerings, as I have commanded, saying Aaron and his sons shall eat. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. So God is now inviting these priests to come and symbolically fellowship with Him by eating this meal in the presence of God. Okay, there they would complete um, that part of the, uh, of the ordination. But you note verse 33, you have an interesting command. It says, And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed for it will take seven days to ordain you. Now seven, as you know, is the symbol of completeness and thoroughness. So this is to be a thorough ordination, right? And he says, there you stay for seven days in that, in that courtyard area. You can't go out. What happens if they go out before the seven days are up? Verse 35. 
at the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have commanded you. Right? This is serious. Right? You do what I tell you to do, so you don't die. At this point, you can imagine the congregation leaves, and they, they say, you know, we hope to see you in seven days. Right? Um, and, and they go home. And these five men stay in the courtyard and they do what God commanded them to do. Now, if you're interested in what they're supposed to do for these seven days, you could read Exodus 29. It tells us in great detail. But let me just tell you, they are to offer the offerings that we have already seen every single day. All those offerings, do it again. All those offerings, do it again. All those offerings, keep making atonement for your sin. And you know what's, what God is doing to them? He's humbling them. He's, br- right, because... <laughs> This is the temptation for everyone who finds themselves in a position of leadership, and it's pride. And it, it's easy to see how this ceremony would puff them up, right? And, and, and all the clothes and the attention and the sacrifice, and God wants humble men. And so seven days, you must think about your sin before you serve on behalf of the others. You must first cry out for mercy. It will keep them from pride. I think it will keep them from corruption, Right? I mean, I, I could just imagine, I would hate to have this job, by the way, because can't you imagine people bringing a sacrifice to you and you, and you examine it as a priest and you, it's obvious to you it's blemished and then you have to communicate that to them? Well, why are you bringing a blemish? You have to call them? You have to have, have that conflict? Don't you imagine the pressure would be, man, can't you just look the other way? Right? This, it's fine. It's good enough. Right? Could you imagine these priests will see, will, will actually examine skin to see if you're ritually unclean and have to be cast out of the, uh, of the, the community of God's people? Can't you imagine people falling on their knees before the priest saying, please don't declare me unclean. Please don't cast me out. I mean, I'll hide it. No one will know, right? Please don't send me away from my children. They need me. Can you imagine the pressure that must have been upon these men? And God wants to enforce upon their heart. You are not to be corrupt. You are to be completely devoted to me. And this, I think, is what we want for our own leaders. Men who are devoted to God. I would encourage you, church, to pray that God would give us humble and devoted men who lead this church. That they would feel the weight of the call that has been placed upon them. That's why we take our time with elder candidates. It's why we listen to their teaching and review their theology and speak to their wife and consider their qualifications in light of Scripture. It's why we uh, uh, determine, do they love the church? It's, it's why, why we, we want to take, take this opportunity to present them to the church. It takes months. And, and I, I think it's important for us to do that. I think this is what God is emphasizing. The church needs, by the way, men who are willing to take this weight upon them. I would like to even encourage some of you men in this room. But you might, get, you might do well to aspire to be an elder. You might do well to aspire to take the weight of this office upon you because God's people need godly leaders. For the rest of us Christians, please understand that the New Testament tells us you're a priest as well. You know, the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says you are a royal priesthood so you may proclaim the praise of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And in in some way, all of us should feel this weight. You all represent God to a watching world. And these, these truths ought to humble us. It ought to drive us to prayer. We ought to, we ought to be thinking, God, help me to be a holy man or woman that I might represent you faithfully to a, to a world. Help my family to look different and how I work to be different and how I live in community to be different. Right? You understand you are to represent God to a world. We are all priests in, in that sense that God has put us into that position. And we see God calling these priests aside to represent the, uh, God to these people. And He will. In fact, He will make His presence known. As we see in chapter 9, that God's presence is celebrated. And now that the preparation was over and the priests have been ordained and the tabernacle has been constructed, the time of worship has arrived. This is the first day in a new era. The people of God gathering together for the first time ever in the corporate worship of God. Aaron will finally take over as high priest. And like Moses did in chapter 8, we will see in chapter 9 over and over again, he did all that the Lord commanded him. He did all that the Lord commanded him. And because of his beautiful obedience... And by God's grace, God will make Himself known in a powerful way. But before He does, you note that the congregation seeks God's forgiveness. They seek God's forgiveness. It's recorded for us in verses 1 all the way through verse 21. Notice a particular verse 5. It says, And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. I don't know if you could kind of get the sense that this is royal language. That they're coming to stand before a king. And there at before a king, they will make atonement for their sins. In verses 8 through 14, it might surprise you that the first atonement that's made for sin is for the priests. The priests must make atonement, a calf for purification offering, a ram for a burnt offering. It might surprise you because they've been doing this now for seven days over and over and over again. And yet for the first time in which God's people gather together for public worship, the high priest Aaron will publicly admit before all the people that he is a sinner. And his sin has polluted God's dwelling. And so he first will seek forgiveness by offering sacrifices. And then from verses 15 through 21, atonement for the people is sought. Uh, a goat for a purification offering, a calf and a lamb for a burnt offering, a grain offering, an ox and a ram for a peace offering that they might feast with the Lord. And so they are there seeking God's forgiveness. There's one verse in particular that I want to point out that I find very interesting. It's in verse 2. This is Moses' instruction to Aaron. He said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering. Or um, sometimes, as I like to call it, as I mentioned last week, a purification offering. Now, why that's interesting, if you remember last week, the purification offering, God um, broke out um, the type of offering you would bring based upon your status. Right? Remember, so the high priest brings this, the nation brings this, a a leader brings this, a citizen brings this, a poor citizen brings that. And, And we saw, if you remember, that the high priest must bring the most expensive sacrifice for his purification offering, a bull, God says. But here in verse 2, he's not told to be a, bring a bull. He's told to bring a bull calf. I find that interesting because though, though I've said, I think a couple times already today, that this is the first time in which Israel has publicly gathered to worship. It's not exactly true. This is the first time they publicly gathered to worship God. 
They've already, if you remember, gathered to worship, but something other than God. When Moses was on top of the mountain receiving God's commandments, Aaron was at the base with all the people of Israel, and there he would lead the people in worship, not to God, but to a golden calf in which he had created. And now for the first time since that terrible day, God says to Aaron, I want you to take a calf and I want you to kill it. It's time to kill that idol once and for all. Sacrifice your idol to me. You, of course, know that we all struggle with idolatry in our hearts. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. The Bible teaches that we all have idols. Now, we don't worship golden calves, do we? But there are things in which our lives revolve around. It might be family. They're usually good things, by the way. Career. It might be health. It might be your accomplishments. It might be your looks. Right? And we, are we, we, we orient our life around them. The Bible calls that idolatry. All of us at one time have done that. And yet God in His mercy for many of us here, hasn't He? He's helped us kill our idols that we might give ourselves completely to Him. And I, I just, can you imagine what it would have been like for Aaron there? He, what he must have been thinking. And certainly as he g- gathers before the people, he must have been thinking about the last time he led in worship. It was to this, this, this hideous idol. And now he gathers the people and he says in front of them all, we're going to kill that idol in honor of the true God. And, God. and what God is doing in his great mercy to Aaron is he's restoring him. It reminds me of, remember Peter denied Jesus three times. And after the resurrection, Jesus pulls Peter aside. And three times he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Right? He is restoring Peter back into fellowship with him. It's exactly what God is doing with Aaron. That he who created the golden calf now gets to kill it in honor of the one true God. And there they gather and they seek God's mercy and grace through these sacrifices and according to God's promise. Look at his promise in verse 6. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Right? And so they're doing this in order that God might come in a special and powerful way. And so they seek his forgiveness. And then you'll note in verse 22, they receive God's blessing. And the Bible tells us, In verse 22, that Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, uh, the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. Right there, he's using the bronze altar as his platform, four and a half feet high. He would raise his hands and perhaps say the ancient words recorded in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. As after blessing the people in this form of prayer, He comes down from that altar and He and Moses, according to verse 23, they go in to speak with God. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. We're not sure why, but it seems to that they want to have a conversation with God. Make sure everything's going okay, I guess. And when they came out, they blessed the people. Evidently, it was a good conversation. Right? More blessings upon you. But the service, the worship service, does not culminate with this closing prayer, this closing blessing, but in the appearance of the glory of God. As you read on in verse 23, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire 
came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. Right? The devouring fire of God's presence emerges from the tabernacle and receives the offering from the burnt, uh, burnt altar, bronze altar, just as he had promised he would come. And you think about this, these people who once saw that fiery cloud of God's glory on top of Mount Sinai from a distance, and now he appears immediately in front of them in their presence. And scripture says he consumed the offerings, he, he incinerated them like that. Why do you think God did that? Why would he appear in that way? It seems to me what God is communicating is that he will consume the offerings that the people brought instead of the people. I will take your substitute. I will pour out my, my anger on sin upon the substitute which you have placed upon this altar in order that I might be gracious to you. Okay? And you would you imagine what that would have been like? To have been there and seen this and witnessed this. You know, the glory of God, the, the word glory just simply means weight. Don't you think you would have felt the weight at that worship service? The heaviness of God in their midst. That God's glory would just come out right there in front of all the people. And by the way, one day, you and I, if we're in Christ, will see the glory of God, won't we? Not in this symbolic, fiery cloud, but we will see the glory of God in His unmediated splendor. We shall gaze upon Him as He fully cleanses us. And that will be to our unimaginable and eternal delight to be able to see God and His glory. You see what? God wants to be reunited with His people. That His people have been created to be with Him. His people are, are to be in relationship with Him. And so all this pomp and all the, all the oil and all the blood and all the vestments and all the days and all the sacrifices and all the tabernacle and all of it is for one point that God wants to be with the people in which He has made. That God wants to dwell in their midst. It is simply that man will be reunited with their Creator. And my friends, it's why Jesus came to this earth. It's why Jesus dwelled in our midst, is it not? To reveal the, the, the glory of God in unique and powerful ways, namely through His death and resurrection where He would die to pay for our sins and rise in victory to make a way for you and I to be reunited with this God who has made us. This is why He has come. This is why He came on that day, because He wants to be with them. You notice their response is recorded in verse 24. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Right? They, they shouted and fell. Their response was vocal and visible. There was joy and fear, delight and reverence, wonder and wait. They worshipped. And please, please understand, by the way, that, that, that worship, corporate worship for us, is not attending church and watching other people. That is not worship. Worship is when you gather with the people of God to express your heart and your mind and your commitment and your love and devotion through song and prayer and confession and gifts. It's when you come and you actively attempt and seek to sit under the authority of God's Word that you might submit your life to it. Worship 
is, is not a spectator activity. It is an active participation as we see here. They worshipped God. In fact, they shouted. That's, by the way, in case you're not sure, is a term for joy. That's not shout in like, ah! That's shout in, in wonder and delight. When something similar would happen to Solomon's temple, they would all shout, um, God is good, right? For, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. They would be reminded of the grace and the love and the goodness of God, right? So they're shouting in joy, and yet there's still awe upon them, right? As they fall upon their faces. I, I wonder if, if, if God, we are more in awe of God, if His majesty was more powerful in our, if our heart, we might more quickly and earnestly seek to live lives of obedience, lives that honor Him. Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the New Testament. Hebrews 12. Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I don't know if you notice the tension here in their worship. Um, you know, some people like worship like church service, to be loud and expressive and joyful. Some people like church service to be meditative, reverent, a little quieter. It seems to me they experience both. There's joyful shouting and humble silence as they experience God's presence because they've done all that the Lord has commanded and they've obeyed God and they've enjoyed His presence We'll see in chapter 10, the opposite is also true as their shouts of joy are replaced, are replaced with stunned fear. Consider chapter 10, our last chapter this morning. God's honor is vindicated. God's honor is vindicated. It begins in verse 1 as we see God's judgment. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which had not com- which he had not commanded them and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord Nadab and Abihu are the eldest of the four sons of Aaron it was to their honor that Nadab, Abihu, Moses, and Aaron were able to ascend the mountain there after the covenant was ratified in order to eat with the Lord in the presence of the Lord. And it's here these two men fill a censer, an instrument to carry fire. They put incense on it that is, according to Scripture, unauthorized. That is, God did not command it. And therefore, God killed them. That the fire that brought such joy to the people of God in Leviticus chapter 9, showing God's favor, now in Leviticus 10, brings great fear upon God, showing His judgment. In fact, I wish there wasn't a chapter break here, because this, my friends, all happened in the same worship service. This is the same day. The the same language is used. The fire consumed the offerings, now consumes those who are bringing the offerings. This on the inauguration of Israel's public worship, they go from the, the euphoric triumph of the presence of God to this paralyzing tragedy where God in judgment strikes two men down dead. You say, well, why did He kill them? Well, if you, we don't have time, but I, I, Leviticus 16 verses 1 through 2 tells us why He killed them. 
we, we find out that they tried to walk right into the Holy of Holies. They, 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 they offer their own incense doing what they want and they thought they would just barge right in on God and say hello when God has strictly forbidden them to do only what He has commanded them to do. In fact, you see that there in verse, uh, verse 1. They, they, he did what had not commanded them. And it's shocking because we see it in chapter 8 and chapter 9 over and over again. They did as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded. And all the specificity of the sacrifices and the ordination and the day of worship and each vessel made to precise specifications and, and, and all the vestments that God had commanded. I mean, there's no ambiguity at all. He even said in chapter 8, he says, stay here, do what I told you to do for seven days so you don't die. And then in chapter 10 and verse 1, we see that they have done what the Lord has not commanded them. Please understand, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot do whatever you want with God. God gave them priests. Why? Because they could not come to him on their own. Otherwise they would die. He says, you don't realize how thoroughly sinful you are. You don't realize how utterly holy I am. And so we even sang this morning, He is a good, good Father. Amen. He is our Father. But we also sang, and He is perfect in all of His ways. Perfect in power, in love, in purity. God says, I'm holy. The psalmist says in Psalm 62, those of low estate are but a breath and those of high estate are a delusion. If the ba- in the balance they go up, they are altogether lighter than a breath. Right? God's saying you take all the accumulation of the accomplishments of men and put it on one side of the scale and put me on the other and they weigh about as much as a breath compared to me. And then the breath comes to God and says, okay, you who weigh the weight of the universe, you do what I want, how I want it. And I, my friends, it is absurd and it is offensive. In fact, John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says if we reflect how holy a thing God's worship is, the enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. And it, it, it might, it might, you might look at this and say, this is too, this is too much. This is severe, right? And if you, if you stumble over this, and I understand the stumble, the elders were discussing this on Thursday night, and some of us were, were thinking through this. This seems harsh. But if this seems harsh, what do you do with judgment? eternal judgment. I mean, this is the reminder, isn't it? In fact, I I would suggest to you that it is simply by God's grace that all of us are not struck down by Him this very moment. My friends, we have sinned like Nadab and Abihu. We are no better. In fact, billions of sins are committed every second and He could put us all to death. In fact, He will. One day. We're all going to die. And why do we die? Because of sin. Right? And yet God in His grace gives us time to live for a little while. Why? That we might have access to the mercy and the grace in which He offers us. So please, please do not be deceived to think, okay, I'm glad this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. Right? Because God doesn't strike down people dead. He clearly doesn't care about how we live and how we worship Him. I, I, you think, that, well, that's Old Testament. I, read Acts 5, my friends. A man named Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament church were struck down by God. And what we're learning, I think, is that we should be very considerate of what the Lord has commanded when we gather to worship Him. We should do what God has told us to do. 
some, uh, maybe a month ago, I was having a conversation with a guy in a grocery store, and he was telling me, you know, I'm just, I worship God my own way, and I, I, you know, I, wor- I worship Him when I'm working, and I worship Him, you know, just kind of at home, and I'm kind of doing my own thing. And you see, and some, many people have that. As long as I'm sincere, that's okay with God. And I have no reason to think that these men were not sincere in offering incense, but it certainly was not okay with Him. Leviticus reminds us that our God is a great King, and He's very interested in how we worship. And so what we will do at Hamilton Baptist Church, when we gather to worship, we will only do what we see Christians in the Bible doing. We will pray, we will sing, we will read scripture, we will testify, we will bring our gifts, we will take communion and practice the Lord's Supper, we will commission people, and we will read scripture and preach the word of God, and we will do nothing other than that. Because this is how God has commanded us. In fact, I want you to note that these are very religious men, aren't they? I mean, these, these are, they're in religious clothes, they're doing a religious, you can't get more religious than this, and that religion did not save them. And so if you've been baptized, praise God. I think that's important. If you serve, praise God. If you give to the church, praise God. That won't save you. None of that will. None of your religious acts will save you. The only thing that will save you is trusting in the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, you look at this and you think God is unkind because He struck down these people. I would, I would encourage you to look at the cross because there you will see the unbelievable kindness of God that He struck down His perfect Son so that he might not strike down you. Perhaps you've heard the story of the 19th century wagon train being pulled by meandering oxen headed out west in a search for a homestead. And there in the horizon, they saw the sky fill with smoke. And soon it became clear that that fire was quickly approaching them. It was a prairie fire and there was no hope of outrunning it. There was no hope of escape until a man had an idea. He quickly set fire to the grass behind them, burning a large area. And then they put that fire out. And then they all gathered into the area, huddled there, into the area that was burned out and waited. And that prairie fire approached them. It drew near and and flames roared all around them but could not get to them because they stood where the fire had already burned. God will not strike me down today or forever because I stand where the fire has already burned. I stand in Christ and it is my only hope Do you stand in Christ? It is not through your religious acts, your goodness, your morality that will commend you to God. It is only by linking your life to Christ who has died for sinners and rose from the dead as we see God's judgment. You notice quickly that after that judgment, God issues this warning according to Moses in verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified. Right? Those who are near him are the priests. And sanctified means to treat me as holy. He's saying the priest will treat me as holy. Why? Why does he want the priest to treat him as holy? Well, read on in verse 3. And before all people, I will be glorified. What he's saying is that if the priests treat me as holy, in order that the nation will glorify me, they're going to follow their leaders. And so what you do is going to impact how they follow. This is why God couldn't let this go. If these priests just did whatever they want, certainly the people would just follow them into that air, into that sin. Well, Aaron must have thought about this. 
By the way, this, of course, is a man now dedicated to God. He's given his whole life to God. He just watched his sons with pride of a daddy be ordained as priests into God's service, and yet they are now struck down by God. And you notice his response in verse 3. And Aaron held his peace. What else could he say? In fact, Aaron is prohibited from mourning. I want you to look in verse 4. And Moses called Mishael and Elsaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and the wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, be well, the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did and they did according to the word of Moses. It seems like an unbelievable burden, doesn't it? That you cannot mourn for the death of your sons. Not because it wasn't sad. It was sad. In fact, Moses says, the, what, verse 6, the whole house of Israel will bewail the burning the Lord has kindled. The reason they couldn't mourn is the people might get the wrong idea. Right? They may get the idea that these priests did not accept God's judgment. This, I think, was a defining moment. The people were watching. How would Aaron, their high priest, respond? Would he disagree with God or would he agree with God's verdict? In some way, to mourn was to say, uh, to not to mourn was, was to say, as much as this child means to me, nothing is more important to me than the Lord. And so God forbids them from mourning. You notice then, God will go on to instruct them. Verse 8 is interesting. It says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron. You notice God speaking directly to Aaron here. You know how many times God speaks directly to Aaron? One time. It's always, I speak to Moses, I speak to Moses. Sometimes God will speak to Moses and Aaron. The only time recorded in Scripture that God directly speaks to Aaron is Leviticus 10.8. Why? I think He's saying in light of this tragedy, I want you to know you're still, you're still my high priest. You're still mine. I still accept you. And he goes on to speak to Aaron. He gives him three instructions. He says why you're serving as a priest. And when anyone's serving as a priest, they're not to drink on duty. Verse 9. The reason is, is that you could get drunk and desecrate the tabernacle. Many speculate, is that how, why Nadab and Abihu died? That they might have been drunk in the midst of this worship. In verse 10, he says you need to distinguish between what is holy, clean, and unholy. We will explore that at length as we move on in the book of Leviticus. Note verse 11 will be the third instruction God gives to Aaron. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The priest's job was to teach God's people. And what we see is that understanding God's word was then and is today vital for the people of God. In verses 12 through 15, Moses goes on to explain the sacrifices that need to take place for the rest of the day, almost saying, in other words, okay, you remaining priests, you keep doing exactly what God has said. And then in verses 16 through 20, there is a dispute between Moses and Aaron. They have a little argument whether one of these sacrifices was done properly. Aaron clarifies, and Moses finally approves. And it seems at this point the people disperse and they go home. What do you think you would have been thinking about as you walked home? This was a crazy day, wasn't it? 
I think perhaps one thought that you must have had, I trust that they had, is that, listen, these priests are they're supposed to protect us from God. And on the very day, God strikes down 40% of them. He just lost two of the five. You wonder if they thought, we need a priest who won't be careless. We need a priest who won't be proud. We need a priest who will keep the law perfectly. We need a priest to offer a perfect sacrifice so we can draw near. We need a better priest. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a better priest. His name is Jesus. In fact, just as the priest began by washing, our Lord began His ministry standing in the middle of the Jordan River. As the priest was anointed with oil, so our Lord was anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. As the priest carried the names of God's people upon his chest, Scripture tells us that our Lord carries the names of his people written on the palms of his hand, always before him. As the priest carried the the Urim and the Thum to discern God's will, we are told over and over in Scripture, our Lord lived his entire life in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. As the priest stood in the courtyard, surrounded by the death that sinners brought into their presence, so our Lord has come into this world of death, surrounded by sinners. As the priest offered sacrifices for their own sin, our Lord, as Pastor Josh read for us this morning, according to Hebrews 7, is holy, undefiled, and innocent. And therefore, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices for his own sin. As the priests would serve in the holy place, the Bible says that our Lord entered into heaven itself so that he might appear in the presence of God for us. As the priests wore a golden crown, so our Lord wore a crown his made of thorns. As the priest had a sign above his head that read, Holy to the Lord, so our Lord had a sign above his head in mocking derision, calling him the king of the Jews. As Nadab and Abihu are carried outside the camp, so our Lord, according to Hebrews 13, was also carried outside the camp to be crucified. As priests sacrificed day and night to atone for our sin, our Lord, according to Hebrews 9, offered himself one time and has sat down because the work is done you need a priest you need a mediator you have one in jesus christ he is not simply a new high priest he is the perfect eternal high priest for there is one mediator between god and man christ jesus And I'll tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the Word of God, just as the glory of God on that day emerged from His dwelling, so one day soon, the glory of our Lord, namely Jesus Christ, will emerge from the dwelling of God in heaven and come for us. What then do we do on that day and every day leading up to that day? We worship. We worship with heartfelt joy and humble adoration to this God who has come to save us. Father, we want to be people of worship. Not singing simply. People who have devoted our lives completely and entirely to You. We confess today, we believe You are holy, holy, holy. And yet at the same time abounding 
and grace and mercy. Your steadfast love for us endures forever. May we take these truths into our hearts and live in light of them as we await for the return of our Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.